0: everyone, and welcome back for the second season of Cryptids Decrypted, the podcast where we interview experts on cryptozoology and also go through the history and break down some of the most popular myths that we can find. If you're a first time listener, welcome. And if you're a second time listener, welcome back. It's been good to have a month break. We've lined up some awesome cryptids. I'm working on lining up some amazing guests. And I just wanted to remind everybody that if you do enjoy the show, Uh, Go ahead and subscribe wherever you're listening, and then if you can, uh, go rate us on iTunes if you're listening there, and if you're not listening there, uh, it turns out those other platforms don't have ratings, so the best thing you can do then is just share us with your friends. Uh, The only way that we're putting this out there is by by sharing. Most of our views come through Reddit, so you want to upvote us, you want to share us on Twitter, you want to just go yelling in the streets that's uh you know that's all great and you know our listeners get us to keep doing this and i just want to say that we appreciate you and you know thanks for listening so without further ado i'll get to the episode got a great interview today with kelly milner halls she writes uh field guides about cryptids and she i mean she's written so many things we'll, we'll get into it but i'll talk to you a little bit at the end of the episode if you want to keep listening about what's coming up next for the show and what the current planned release schedule is so stay tuned at the end if you want to hear that and until then enjoy this interview So this is going to be the first episode of our second season of Cryptids Decrypted. Today we have Kelly Milner-Halls. Did I say that right?
1: You said it perfectly.
0: Excellent. So Kelly is an incredibly prolific writer with, uh, I think, 38 total total books since 1995. Around 50. Around 50. 50. Wow, even more. And then uh, 1,500 articles for various magazines.
1: Yep, and newspapers.
0: <laughs> That's insane. And, uh, and, and, you, and you've written some, uh, some cryptid books as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I have always loved the weird. Weird is my favorite topic to write about. And so I decided to write a book called Tales of the Cryptids. Now, that was my very first cryptozoology <laughs> book. If you want to know what that looks like, that's what <laughs> it looks like. Every kid, well, the kids have grown up a little bit, but I, I, this was published in about 2006. Right. And I thought I was going to prove all the cryptids were fake. And I couldn't do it. Some are real, some are fake, most were maybe. So I ended up giving the evidence for and against and letting the kids evaluate. They don't want to be told what's not real and what is real if I can't prove it's real or not real. Um, If I say it's not real and I don't have the evidence, that's as big a lie as saying it is real. And so I put the evidence in and it was overwhelmingly popular. The kids loved it as as much as I did. And then later I wrote a book called In Search of Sasquatch, because Sasquatch became my favorite, maybe, Bigfoot. And there were no books about the people who believed. There were lots of books about, it's fake, don't worry about it. But I didn't find evidence to prove it was fake, so I wrote this one, In Search of Sasquatch. That was the second cryptozoology book. Now, as I mentioned, 2006, a lot of my kids have grown up. And they wanted more and more adult so the last book that just came out in September, if you see it, it's a big fat book. That is a book for my kids that have grown up. So that's like for kids that are 14 and up.
0: Yeah. Is that Although a drop younger bear? younger kids
1: can enjoy it too. What?
0: Is that a drop bear on the cover? Uh, the top uh, right? Like I, I know that koalas and drop bears are kind of...
1: It is a drop bear, yes. From yeah. Australia, yes. Yeah. Which uh, will fall right into the game that you're talking about. Plus. Yeah. So yeah,
0: why don't we... Before we before we get into, uh, you know, all these questions, I do want to play a game called Truth or Cryptid. So I've got yes. three creatures here. Okay. Some of them are real, and uh, some of them are cryptids. And I want to see uh, if you can guess which is which. Okay. So the first one I've got is the Asian saber-toothed deer. So this looks like your typical deer, but rather than horns, it sports a pair of fangs that hang down much like a saber-toothed cat. Hmm.
1: I want to say it's a cryptid because I can't see why a deer would need fangs. That's not something evolutionary sound. So I'm gonna say cryptid, but I could be wrong.
0: Yeah. So that's that one is actually real, and this is the it's one that
1: real. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I looked at it and uh, I couldn't believe it because it looks so goofy. But apparently they're used in mating displays. Uh, oh,
1: oh no, kidding! Ah, so say hey, babe. Check yeah, out
0: exactly. It's like so check out these chompers. <laughs> so that's yeah it uh it looks goofy (laughs) goofy as hell it looks like a warthog mixed with a deer kind of
1: oh that's so interesting but that proves the point that just because it's a strange idea doesn't mean it's not real
0: yeah exactly what's next we have okay so we have a giant freshwater eel ranging from 10 foot in juveniles to 80 feet in adults uh this serpentine creature has a body that ranges from black to turquoise and has been found in several very deep lakes uh, notably Lake Tahoe. Huh.
1: I do know they have large eels in Loch Ness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that might be Nessie. Um, Lake Tahoe, 80 feet. 80 feet's awfully long. <laughs> it's pretty big. I'm going to say cryptid.
0: Yep, that one is Tessie. Yes. Tessie, so, uh, <laughs> Lake Tahoe's version of Nessie, you're correct. Yes, you know,
1: indeed. So I'm one in one.
0: One in one, yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting. So Tessie... Or just Nessie, actually, you know, with those giant eels, that was there was that recent uh, biological DNA. study where, where they thought exactly. they were finding all that eel DNA. So that's super fascinating.
1: But they also found a couple of DNA strands or uh, identifications that they couldn't place. Yeah, so that I know. still leaves us a possibility of a Nessie.
0: Yeah, I just talked with uh, David George Gordon about that on our last episode of last season, and it was this some really interesting stuff there. But okay, last one. Uh, We have the horror frog. So these amphibians are rarely sighted and shoot blood from their eyes when confronted. Unlike normal amphibians, this frog is larger and covered in hair, and they sport wicked claws that extend from their fingertips.
1: I think that's real.
0: Yeah, that one one is real, and they're horrifying. Like, I get why they're called horror frogs.
1: Do we know where they're from?
0: um hold on one second let me pull oh up. a
1: tough question
0: yeah central uh central africa wow yeah.
1: i would like to see one wouldn't you like to see one yeah I,
0: you know i honestly don't know i don't know if i'd want to get up close because <laughs> they look they look pretty grody they're they're scary looking maybe someone
1: else's hand
0: yeah that's yeah that for might sure. be doable or behind some thick glass maybe you know? see i
1: used to catch um horned lizards in texas and they spit blood from their eye
0: oh god that's such a weird evolutionary thing to have i'm really happy i don't have that to be honest i
1: know that would be embarrassing (laughs) like if you're out on a date right (laughs) it's
0: just you get really nervous and all of a sudden you're shooting blood sorry it's like oh i'm
1: (laughs) stigmata i knew i shouldn't i
0: shouldn't have ordered the tomato soup oh it always gets this way such is the world of cryptids i know right so let's talk about your interest in cryptids. You know, I, I've, I've met a lot of people through the course of this program now who, who've chosen to, to write a lot about these things, but you, you've, kinda, you've written about a lot of subjects and actually very similar to somebody who talked to you, like I said, David George Gordon. He started out writing field guides, and then he moved into writing cryptozoology field guides. And I'm curious, so you have a pretty wide variety of books. Why, why move into cryptids?
1: You know, my dad was a hard science guy. He was a computer science and physics Guy. And I used to crawl up in his lap when I was little and watch cryptozoology on documentaries, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster. And I would be intrigued and I would say, Dad, are those real? And he wouldn't shut me down. He would say, You know, I guess we need more evidence before we can decide for sure. Now, I know now as an adult, he was trying to teach me to be a critical thinker, evaluate the evidence, see what I think on my own. But he encouraged me to look for more evidence. And so when I got To be a writer for children, I wrote a lot of things about dinosaurs and mummies and things that I loved, the topics that I loved also from those documentaries. But then I started thinking about cryptozoology and Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and all those things. And I thought, like I said before, I should prove to the kids these aren't real. And when I did the research, it was remarkable, all the information that I found that made some of the cryptids especially have potential for being real. So I thought, well, super duper interesting that Bigfoot, what I thought was totally unreal. Now I'm leaning towards thinking he might be real. Then I started wondering about Area 51 and Roswell, New Mexico and UFOs. And then I started wondering about ghosts. And so I sort of expanded my more typical science books to be um, investigative books. Because if I was a kid curious about those things, I figured the kids were still curious about those things. So I decided I would give them a book that respected their curiosity rather than trying to just blow them out of the water.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's, it's funny looking at the covers of your books. I definitely think that that is something I would have picked up at a book fair, you know, in, in elementary school. Like those were the things that I was trying to read uh, because I was fascinated by them. And, you know, of course, dinosaurs and mummies you know, things that have been proven to, to be real that are just
1: also out of left field. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the kids want to know, and everybody blows them off. Kids are so disrespected. And I like kids. I think kids are great. They're honest, and they're direct, and they're willing to consider the evidence. And so I thought, well this is a book I would have loved when I was a kid. So I'm going to write this book. So I essentially write for the kid I was. And then I find my readership. The kids find the books because they want something that's going to be straight with them, not something that's going to say, why are you thinking about this silly stuff? Why don't you go watch TV? Why don't you go do some homework? They want to really be taken seriously. And I take them seriously because really they grown to be adults. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but you know, you're probably, you could easily have been one of my readers when you were, younger man.
0: Yeah, definitely cuz were putting out books uh you know this I mean a lot of these came out in the 90s and that's yeah, yeah. that's I was in elementary school then. So Absolutely. So you might exactly have actually my
1: books and those books didn't exist incidentally when I was a kid. Yeah. So there yeah. were my curiosities were there but the books weren't.
0: And I think that you know it's it's books like that that inspired me to do a lot of my fiction writing about cryptids because it's just they are these fantastic ideas that are right Absolutely. on the border of reality which yes. is like it's very interesting. Now you said that there are some cryptids that uh that you were able to like totally dismiss as like yeah that's that's way out there and some that you you felt they were more on the fence. I'm curious what are some of the cryptids that fell into those categories.
1: Well, in in the new book my favorite probably fake is the goatman.
0: <laughs> oh, all right. Where's the goatman from?
1: Um the goatman is from back east on um I think it's Virginia, but it might be Maryland. I think it's Maryland. And um, apparently these kids let their dog out and the dog went nuts and they went out to see what the dog was barking at. And these girls swore they saw a goat man, which is a bipedal, goat man. Huh. Interesting. Um, so it's kind
0: of like a almost like a jersey devil but with uh, less yeah, of a western religious thing. Yeah. Only band. a goat. More like yeah. a goody,
1: a goody guy. And so I can't prove it's not real because the witnesses are very determined and the sources that I used were reliable newspapers and magazines. They were the sources for the eyewitness reports. And they never did find all of the dog. They found the dog's body but not the dog's head. Oh god. That's horrible. So they think the goat man killed the dog. Now, did that happen? I don't know. A Goatman is a little bit hard for me to swallow because you'd think, I don't know, if there was a Goatman, we'd be after it.
0: Yeah. So that when, sounds
1: pretty scary. But then again, I mean, we haven't actually found Bigfoot and I think he might be real. So until I find more evidence, I'm just leaning towards thinking he's not real. Yeah. Well, so
0: it's really interesting, right, with all these eyewitness reports, and they, they can be, like, very convincing, um, and I think that most of the people I've talked to from the cryptozoology community, like, a lot of what they lean on is eyewitness reports, and so I, I come from an experimental psychology background, that's my master's, and so, I, you know, I've done a lot of work looking at uh, eyewitness reports. I have some friends that studied them, and there's this basically this idea that uh, you know when a flash, they can be unreliable, inf- exactly, and you can just keep adding details to them, and so you might be a hundred percent convinced that they're real. So it, that's the toughest part is you know these people will absolutely seem credible, and it's it's so hard to tell the difference.
1: Well, that's what I always tell kids. You know, if you don't know exactly what you saw, it's dark. You know, there's a the woods are there. It's it's tough to know what you saw your subconscious tends to fill in the gaps yep. with things that you've seen in other places. So some things like the chupacabra, there's one theory that it's um, um a monster that was in a movie called Species. <laughs> and this woman saw something, didn't know exactly what she'd seen. She'd seen the movie the night or two nights before, so maybe she filled in the gaps with what she'd just been fed in her con in her subconscious and consciousness. So th- I tell kids that's the problem with the eyewitnesses is even though you're very sincere and you think that's what you saw, it's possible that your subconscious filled in the gaps right. with something that you'd seen before. But then there's other witnesses. Like I interviewed a truck driver who went to Georgia on a Bigfoot expedition. He didn't expect to see it. He wasn't a believer. We wanted to play with all the night vision goggles and all the stuff that go along with it. And so he's playing with the goggles and he's doing all this stuff and he can't sleep on the ground. So he decides to hike back to the truck, sleep in his truck and come back the next morning. And on the way, he hears a rustling behind him and he thinks it's probably a bear because they do have bears in those woods. So he drops his canteen on the ground. It's full of grape Gatorade. And he figures this bear will be attracted to the sweet smell. Won't follow him. Smart. So he goes on and he walkie talkies back to his friends that are at the campsite and say, hey, listen, if you walk up here, grab my canteen because I left it behind and I, I, I want the canteen. So when they did come back, they said, do you want the turtle shell? that's on top of the canteen. And he said, what are you talking about? And He said, they said, well, there's a turtle shell sitting on top of the canteen. And he says, is it still full? And he goes and they said, no, it's empty. So he says, oh, that's weird. And then the next night, same thing happens. He tries to sleep at the campsite, goes back to his truck. But this time he's wearing the night vision goggles. And he's just playing, you know, because, you know, even though you're grown-up, you're still a kid. We all know, if you're honest, that kid is not very far from the surface. So no. he's just romping around in these night vision goggles. And then all of a sudden he looks over and he looks over and he realizes standing right in front of him is a Bigfoot. Now, this is not something in the woods and – foggy this is something like you and i seeing each other right here on this webcam he's staring face to face with a bigfoot and he cannot believe what he's seen and he's got night vision goggles on so it's not your typical vision but it's there and it's big and he says i'm standing there and i'm trying to look big and this thing puffs up its chest and looks even bigger and i think i'm about to die Because this thing could take me out in a flash. And then he says, and I swear to you, Kelly, this is true. I wet my pants because I was so scared. And all of a sudden, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden this guy, this Bigfoot decided to break the impasse and he took off. And when he took off with those big, long legs, those strides, it was a fast evacuation. And he said, I'm just left standing there going, what just happened? And Hmm. that kind of witness to me is just so compelling. Now, I wasn't there. I can't swear what he saw. I don't know how many beers he had. I don't know any of those factors. Yeah. But I do know when he told me the story, there was no trace of, um, I'm going to pull the wool over this woman's eye. Um, In fact, my book was already submitted. He couldn't even be in the book. It was just a discussion. So he believes he saw it.
0: Yeah, it's very, it's it's really interesting. There are definitely, and I mean, I've talked to, I talked to a lot of them. One of the most credible people like, so I talked to, have you heard of Peter Byrne? Yes. Yeah. So I talked to Peter Byrne and there is not like a disingenuous bone in that man's body. He, and he has
1: such a deep past history on Bigfoot, oh, Yetis, and all things Sasquatch.
0: He's fast. He's a real life monster hunter. It he was. It, it blew my mind talking to him. I was just like, wow. And I mean, again, there's no, there's there's nothing disingenuous about him.
1: No artifice, nothing trying to fool you.
0: Yeah. And, he, and, and that he can't be said believes. for all
1: Bigfoot hunters. We know there are yeah. a few. <laughs> There's like, a little sketchy.
0: Yeah, and he but actually financially focused. Yeah, he he um he kind of he put the heat on a few of those bigfoot hunters that he had met. Like uh, I think he said Pat, no, not Patterson. Patterson is the one he liked. But yes. There were. Was, was and
1: Gimlin a, is super reliable. Have you met him yet? No, Bob I. Gimlin?
0: I would love to speak with him. I haven't done it yet. But. He's
1: killer. And if you ever go to one of the bigfoot conferences where he's a speaker. Don't hesitate because he's very accessible. He and I sat together at dinner and we talked a lot. Um, I even asked him about the rumor that when Roger Patterson died, he confessed it was not real. Really? And he got visibly a little bit annoyed, not with me, but with the story. And he said, I saw Roger Patterson the day before he died. And do you know what he said to me? And I said, no, Bob, what did he say? He said, Roger was so sick, he could barely get words out. But he forced these words out. And the last thing he said to me was, I'm sorry I got sick, Bob. When I get well, we'll catch one. He says, does that sound like a deathbed confession that it was fake? And I said, it sure doesn't. Now, here's my theory. This is not Bob Gimlin's theory. He did not say this to me. This is my theory. If you're a kid who's grown up with a dad who's been categorized as nuts because he swears he got film of Bigfoot. When he passes away, you might see an avenue to get out from under that crazy dad story. So you might go to the press and say, my dad confessed it was fake when he died. Yeah. And that would really clear up the problems. It would take it out of your corner, take away this image and make it, you know, go away. So that's my personal theory something like that may have happened. Now, do I know that's true? Absolutely not. Yeah. I pulled it right out of my brain. Yeah, but if I, think- I were a kid trying to escape a story like that, I might do something like that.
0: Yeah, and I'd say that that's totally understandable because it's like you know it's bad for your health to be a cryptozoology. Honestly, like like a cryptozoologist. You're not taken seriously. No, and and like you know most of the time it's worse than that. So yeah.
1: But you're, I'm with you with Peter. You know, once you find the guys that are dead serious, the guys that are really doing the work, yeah, like Jeffrey Meldrum. I mean, if you haven't had a chance to talk to him yet, talk to him because he's amazing. I mean, he's a serious scientist who believes it's real. And he couldn't get anybody to do a peer evaluation of his scientific paper. He was doing a paper on Bigfoot tracks. Yeah. So he did the perfect alternative. He went to paleontology. There's a guy named Martin Lockley who's the famous guy for dinosaur footprints. So he went to Martin and said, listen, will you peer review my paper? And he did. So that was the only way that, Jeff, that Jeffrey Meldrum could get a peer-reviewed scientific paper on Bigfoot's tracks wow. by going to a different science that had respect for the trackways that were found all over the country. So it's tough to be a scientist who's willing to consider, could this be real? Yeah. Because they get kind of beat up.
0: They really do. And, you know, like I
1: I definitely still
0: put myself firmly on the side of skeptic, but like you said, when you meet people like Peter Byrne, it is hard in those conversations to maintain that skepticism just because he is, he's so convincing and yeah, it's... And, you know, I'm still
1: skeptical. I have to, I have to be because I'm a journalist. Yeah. But after 12 years, 13 years of doing the research... I'm leaning harder and harder towards thinking something is out there. Now, I know we don't find a body. That's a very fair argument, but we almost never find a bear's body. And we know they are real, but the ecosystem takes care of it. So maybe the ecosystem gobbles up the pieces of Bigfoot. Maybe they bury their dead. We do. If they're an intelligent species, maybe that's what they do. So, you know, that doesn't mean it's not real. So I still have a little skeptic edge, but the more you hear, the more you start leaning One direction or another,
0: yeah, and I think that's you know what you're saying about the ecosystem and all that, and creatures basically being able to hide. I think that's the main reason that I find aquatic cryptids so much more credible. Like, in anything related to the ocean, I'm definitely more willing to say, Yeah, probably, just because there's so much weird stuff out
1: there and so much ocean that hasn't been explored,
0: yeah. And I mean, you know, I think we talked about this on our last episode the giant squid. The giant squid was a cryptid for many years. It was years. a rumor.
1: Yeah, it, it was the stuff of
0: science fiction. And,
1: Until and now they it's got real. video, right?
0: Yep, exactly. And, you know, those guys, they sat in a sub. I forget for how long. I think it was, like, months. They would sit in this sub, and I guess one night they just saw a tentacle come out of the blackness at them, and then that was it. That's all they saw for, like, months. They had to wait for more. So if you imagine stories like that where you're just seeing something almost like out of the corner of your eye or like in a, in a darkened room and then it does turn out to be real, it happens. Like it does exactly. happen. Exactly.
1: And the Highland Gorilla was that way. Yep, exactly. The Highland Gorilla was a rumor until it wasn't. Um, they used to call this animal, the, um, and it's in the new book, the African Unicorn. Really? And when they found it, it turned out to be an Okapi, huh. which according to one report that I read was very tasty. I don't want to <laughs> eat an Okapi. They're way too cute. But – um it wasn't yeah. real until it was. So yeah. there will be animals, and there are all the time. Look at the oarfish. It's a known fish in the in the um, deep, yeah, um, I believe Pacific. It looks like a sea monster. It is the most unlikely creature.
0: It, so speaking of things that can get up to like eighty feet, I think uh, God, it's it can get huge. The oarfish.
1: Oh yeah, like sixty feet.
0: Yeah, and they, and they they do. Difficult. They look horrifying. They they and like you know the decomposing oarfish like is actually what they've credited for like a lot of stuff like Cadborosaurus and things like that. That is, that's what they cite. Um, Yeah. It's interesting. So speaking of, again, of your late, your latest work, uh, it is It is certified basically by Lauren Coleman. He gave it a pretty ringing endorsement.
1: Yes, he did. Lauren Coleman is a good friend of mine. We've been friends for a long time. He's been terrific with all my books because he sees that I take the, serious, the subject seriously. And that he knows that I'm a skeptic. Now, Lauren really is a skeptic. If you ever have a chance to talk to him, yeah. he's a serious skeptic. But he's also a serious investigator. So yeah. when he goes out to gal- gather the information, he gathers it up big time. Um, I actually got to meet Lauren when the museum was still in his house. Oh, really? Which is so cool. He said, you want to see the museum? I said, yeah, sure. And so he took me to his house and I said, wow, the museum's in your house. And it was so cool because there's all this weird stuff everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. And, um. So then when he finally got to move it into a, a, a more official building, I thought that's super awesome. Plus, then Lauren actually gets to have a life, and since he has a new bride, he probably yeah. needs a life.
0: Yeah, no, he seems like a really interesting guy in general. We haven't he had is. a chance. We've been trying to talk to him, but, you know, he's he is the, the leader of the National Cryptozoology Museum, so he's a busy guy.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, but if, you ever, if you ever need a... Drop my name.
0: yeah, it might help a little bit. <laughs> All right, I will. Okay, so I was reading about your background a little bit, and you were uh, a self-described weird kid who's always asking too many questions, and that's kind of what led you down the path of journalism and nonfiction writing. And I'm curious, so what were some of the subjects that first interested you where, you know, maybe you felt like you were asking too many questions, or it was like a subject you shouldn't be tackling or something to that effect?
1: Well, when I was a kid, I grew up in a place called Houston, Texas. And It was rural Houston, Texas at the time, so it was very wooded and very remote. And in the summer, my mom would feed me breakfast and tell me to go away. So my best friend Craig and I would go and explore the woods. Now, every venomous snake in North America thrives in Houston, Texas. So my mom gave me a book, circled the snakes I wasn't supposed to touch, and said, wear your still-toed boots. So I was surrounded by venomous snakes the earliest parts of my life. I moved there when I was five. So I was super interested in reptiles and amphibians because there were also amphibians all over the place. So probably the bulk of my early questions were about reptiles and amphibians and any animal that I ran across in the woods. And even though I was not supposed to touch those venomous snakes, of course I did because I was a kid Um, and I was lucky. I didn't get bit and I touched three different kinds. I touched a copperhead and a rattlesnake and a cottonmouth, which are very venomous snakes. Oh yeah, cottonmouths are no joke. But I was lucky, just a lucky little weird kid. But those were the things that I asked about a lot until the point that I became the person that people went to. Mm -hmm. Because if they ran over a snake with their lawnmower, they said, go get that little Kelly kid, she'll know what it is. And they'd go and get me and I would tell them, well, that's a coral snake. That's another one that I actually touched. But um, so that was the start, reptiles, amphibians. And then anything that I found, um, I found pollywogs, amphibians, babies. You know, frogs have eggs and the eggs hatch into little Polywugs, and then I would, or um, tadpoles, other people call them. And then I would scoop up some of the tadpoles, bring them home, and watch how they developed. So I was a little scientist, even though I didn't know it. I would catch lizards and make lizard circuses and then let them all go. I was just a weird little kid. Yeah. Um, so those are things that I was interested in. Then. I was interested in ghosts and vampires and all the things that all adolescents go through a fascination with. I actually thought vampires might be real, so I slipped with a giant cross. It was a big metal cross, which is very uncomfortable if you roll over on a metal cross because you're afraid and you're a little kid. But um, so all these things fascinated me. Anything that piqued my interest, it made me say, what? If it made me say, what? Or if it made me say, gross. Then I was super curious about it, which you can imagine when I go to school and ask questions about what kind of poop does a bat give? I heard a bat poop is this. I heard a bat poop is that. And the teachers would be like, I don't know anything about bat poop. Why don't you go read a book? (laughs) Well, there are no books about bat poop. It didn't exist. So I was that weird little kid. I was just super curious about everything, about mummies. My best friend sent me a postcard of a mummy, and then I got dead on curious about this dead guy in the picture. And I'd ask my parents, what's his name? What was his job? What did he do? Did he have kids? How did he die? My parents would say, I don't have any idea, go play. (laughs) So over and over again, I was asking questions, but getting no answers. Right. So when I grew up and I studied journalism, thinking I was gonna be an investigative reporter, I realized to do an investigative report, you have to have a, a spine of steel. You have to be willing to report on the bad guys, even if the bad guys have kids. And I couldn't do it. It was tough for me. So I decided I'll write for kids because then I'll never have to write about anything mean, but I can write about weird stuff. And it was perfect for me. So I started researching the things that I was curious about when I was a kid. I was curious about mummies. So I wrote a book called Mystery of the Mummy Kids. I love dinosaurs because to me, dinosaurs were big lizards. Yeah. so of course i wrote about dinosaurs they all sort of spun off on things that i was interested in
0: yeah that's very no i'm, I'm curious with all those uh you know so, so you do dive into a lot of weird and fascinating topics did you ever have a desire to try fiction or was it always non-fiction
1: i you know i was gonna write a series of books on rescue animals people that had rescued animals and so I sent in this proposal, which is just, I propose to write this kind of book, you know, because you're a writer, but not everyone knows that. Yeah. So I sent in this proposal about all these people that had saved animals in one place or another. And then my editor wrote me back and he said, would it be e- easier if you fictionalized all these stories? And I said, well, in theory, it would be easier to make it up, but I yeah. write nonfiction. Well, I had written a short story and he'd read it. And he said, well, I've read your short story, you can do this, let's do them in fiction. Well, I was incredibly skeptical, but it was a three-book deal, so I did all three books. I think they read like Nancy Drew Mysteries. I don't think they're excellent. Hey, Nancy now, Drew Mysteries are fun, though. Well, the kids seem to like them. They seem to really enjoy them, but I'm not sure. So yeah. I stay pretty quiet about those two fictional um, novels for younger readers. One is called Blazing Courage, about a girl who saved horses from a burning barn. And one is about dive, called Dive Into Danger, about a boy who saved a whale who was tied up in fishing nets, both inspired by true stories. Yeah. And at the back of the book, I told the true stories that inspired it. Are they good? I don't know if they are. So I don't spend a lot of time talking about them. I would like to write a cryptozoology series for kids. Yeah. And that may eventually happen.
0: Yeah, I think that's the tough part about fiction versus nonfiction, right? Like nonfiction, you can definitely tell when nonfiction is good because it's objective, but yes. fiction is so much harder. And I feel like fiction writers always... Dislike their own work. Uh, well, plus
1: at this point, I've been doing nonfiction for 25 years. Yeah. So I'm pretty confident in my skills as a nonfiction writer. I'm a pretty good nonfiction writer, but I'm not confident in that fiction. So maybe someday, if I keep practicing, keep getting better at it, then I'll feel more confident and try harder to write fiction. I would really like to write adventure stories for kids about trying to capture cryptids. Definitely. uh, That'd be
0: very interesting. I'm sure, you know, you know, child me would have definitely picked that up at the book fair. Definitely.
1: Well, we've got Roland Smith. who's done a couple. He's done one called Sasquatch and one called Tentacles and (laughs) he's pretty good at that stuff, but we'll see if I can ever give Roland a run for his money. I was going to say there's always room for more. Yeah. So a lot of people
0: that listen to this podcast, I'm sure, you know, there's, there's got to be some, some weird kids out there because we're, we're just putting it out through Reddit and people who are on the cryptozoology Reddit, I'm sure feel a little weird sometimes, you know, what, what words of advice can you give to them to, on how to embrace their weirdness? Because it seems like, you know, you've, done a really good job with that. I think I've done a decent job with it as well but what, what do you say to those kids because it can be really hard to be weird sometimes you
1: know well you know I do something called school visits and that means I go to a lot of elementary schools and the whole point is to teach them critical thinking skills but I do it veiled and weird yeah. and I tell the kids that I get paid for being weird and that's not really untrue I do get paid for being weird because I love all these weird topics but I tell them that's what I do and they automatically say you're not weird you're not weird And then I say, no, 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 I really am weird, but I love it. Being weird is really fun. I do that for two reasons. One, for the kids like me that are weird. And that are constantly harassed for being weird. I want them to know they're not alone. I want them to know that if you're weird, you can grow up to do weird things that are super fun. But the other thing is... Every kid secretly thinks they're weird. Because I can pick the kids out of that are me. I see there's little Kelly there and there's little Kelly there and there's a little Kelly there. But at the end of the school visit, at the end of the presentation, those weird kids come up to me and say how fun it is that finally I got a day that was for me. But then I see I've seen the little cheerleader and I've seen the little football captain. <laughs> And I've seen the little school, you know, the little class president. And they walk up to me after everyone else is gone and they say, I just wanted you to know that I'm weird too. And then suddenly you realize that everybody secretly thinks they're weird. Because really we are each so unique as individuals. We are not exactly like the person next to us, even if they're our best friend, even if we have a lot in common, we still feel inside that we're different. There's something weird about us. But the beauty of that is that's what makes the world such a magical place. That means Steven Spielberg will make Close Encounters. That means, you know, Michael Crichton will write Jurassic Park. It's the little bit of weird uniqueness that yep. creates something new for us all to discover and enjoy. So when when I finish with the kids, my goal is for them to realize exactly who you are is who you're meant to be, yep. whether you're weird or not. Um, and if you feel a little bit weird, more power to you, fly that flag proudly and be the person you are because you're going to make a difference in the world exactly for who you are. So that's my goal. And cryptozoology is a great door into it. I also find that autistic kids, kids that are on the spectrum, they tend to love these high interest topics. Probably I was on the spectrum when I was younger. Yeah. That would explain why I was so adamantly curious about certain topics. Um. And I like to think that they have a place to go yeah. because autistic kids are awesome too. They have miraculous things to do if we just don't break their spirits on their way to doing it.
0: Definitely. And I do think that we're getting to a culture where it is a little bit easier to be weird. Like, especially, you know, even in the, you know, 20, 20 odd years since, since I was in elementary school, I do think it is getting a little bit better. Um, well, cable
1: television think- has helped, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, and I, I think the internet, honestly, too, like with places you can like find Reddit. find your
1: tribes.
0: Yep, exactly. It's so much easier to find a tribe and, you know, it's like, it's acceptable to be creative and to do things like play D&D and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's just opened the door to, to more self-expression.
1: And yeah. it's so interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine who writes, um, who writes historical fiction and she was frustrated because she says, Kelly, you've got this gig going on. You've got this gimmick. She called it a gimmick. It's not a gimmick. I really am weird. But she says, you've got this weird gimmick going on and it works so well for you, but it doesn't work for me. I'm not a weird person. And I said, here's the thing. My readers are my readers, but you've got some quiet little girl who loves reading about Abraham Lincoln and she's waiting for your books, not mine. Yeah. So that's the thing. We don't, that's the same point. Exactly who you are is who you're meant to be. So fly that flag. Yeah. You know, if you love Lincoln, that's a little bit weird too. I loved Abraham Lincoln when I was little, but that's okay. Yeah, that's sure the thing like that a, makes the world magic.
0: There's definitely a subreddit for r slash Lincoln letters. Like I'm, you know, I'm,
1: <laughs> sure, there I'm sure
0: it's there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there are things you want to see and things you don't want to see. I'm positive.
0: Yeah. Oh man. Let's see. One last question. So, you know, you've you've written a lot of books. If you had to write a book specializing on one cryptid, which would you pick and why?
1: I would probably pick the sea monsters. Yeah. I haven't found a publisher willing to do that yet, but I did In Search of Sasquatch. I would love to do In Search of Sea Monsters because even though a lot of them may turn out not to be real, the history of sea monsters is just remarkable.
0: Oh, all the old so maps good. they
1: used, all the old reports and nautical diaries and things. I would love to, to investigate sea monsters specifically a little more closely yeah. just because I think it's remarkable. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: That'd be, kind of the I, same
1: path you did, the sea monster sea, remember, with so much space to explore. Yeah. Who knows where we're going to find?
0: I know. It's, uh, as as we go deeper and deeper, it's going to just, it'll be an exciting time. I think we'll, we'll probably find a, more this decade than we have.
1: Absolutely. And a monster's only a monster until it's real.
0: Yeah, that's true. I guess in that point, it'll be, it's always disappointing. <laughs> I know. So... Why don't you tell uh, everybody, you know, where they can find your work? and what? Well, you're I have a now. website
1: called thewondersofweird.com, and I tell the kids you can put in Kelly and Weird, and you're likely to put, have me come up first but do that with an adult <laughs>
0: because
1: Kelly and Weird could also bring you to places you don't want to explore. Kelly and Weird, wondersofweird.com, and I'll tell you all about all the books that I've written, all about the things that I do. Um, you can get all my books at any bookstore. Brick and mortar, you're familiar with. Yep. Um, but Amazon also has them. I will never badmouth Amazon, except their employees need longer potty breaks. I will say that. <laughs> um, and that's the new one. I do love this book. It was great fun to write because I got to go in more depth. And my illustrator friend Rick Spears, who did all the other cryptid books with me, also did Cryptic Creature Field Guide. He did an adult a skeletal feature and the baby oh. and everyone loves our baby cryptids
0: they sure do yeah they're so
1: cute so um if you want to know more about me that's great if you don't there's a million amazing cryptozoology people that you can look up that's the beauty of this subject there's so many people including this amazing podcast
0: <laughs> thank you so much yeah no there's a we've we've interviewed quite a few of them too but are you doing any more uh, live appearances? I know you did like in a, an event with Brick and Mortar recently.
1: Yes, I did um, 14 cryptozoology events in Spokane. I live in Spokane, Washington now. Gotcha. So I did a bunch of them here. I'm doing five more Bigfoot programs at okay. the local libraries here in Spokane. But I'm all over the country at school visits all the time. So I'll be back in Seattle. I'll be back all over the place. Just watch my website or my Facebook page and you'll know where I am. Okay. All right. You gotta let
0: me know because I'll come get a I'll come get a signed copy of your book. I think we Absolutely. could, we we'll could use it for research.
1: Yes. We'll make it a business meeting and write it off. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been great fun.
0: Well that about wraps it up for this week's episode of Cryptids Decrypted. Kicking off uh, season two with an amazing interview. For our next episode, we're going to be covering Mkele Mbembe. It's uh, an amazing myth from the Congo River Basin that was suggested by Fossil Rexjaw on Reddit. And let me tell you, this one is wild as shit, and I'm really happy that it was suggested to us. Which reminds me, so if you do want to suggest something for us to cover, please talk to us on Reddit, uh, at me on Twitter, comments on Facebook, wherever you're listening to this. Just let us know. Uh, because we do listen and we do take feedback yeah who knows you could be getting a shout out on our next podcast which again something you could share with all your friends we, we all know that you want to be one of the cool weird kids who gets mentioned on this podcast finally before i go uh, my audio drama man of the mountain it's about a guy pretending to be bigfoot who murders people and gets chased by the history channel and tabloids it's a really dark comedy Uh, The audio drama is out for free right now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to this podcast, it's probably there. You can either search uh, Man of the Mountain, Ashton McCauley, um, or just Ashton probably, and it'll pop up, or you can go to anchor.fm slash a-man-of-the-mountain. I'll put a link in the description here. So if you want to listen to that, I'd really appreciate it uh, because we put a lot of work into that, and I think it's really fantastic. If you want to pre order the book, we have Kindle up right now on Amazon, um, and the paperback will be going up soon as it releases on uh, March 2nd, I think. And uh, the audiobook is available in full as well. But, you know, that's enough of me pimping my stuff. Uh, I will see you all in two weeks to talk about Kelly and Bembe with John. It is a fantastic episode, and I can't wait to share it. Thanks again for listening. Have a good day.